0: This is the podcast for Signs of the Second Coming of Christ. In each episode, we attempt to answer common questions concerning the Second Coming and the signs of the times. We are your hosts, Landon Alley and Sean Bailey. Sean is the author of the book series, Chronological Signs of the Second Coming of Christ. Our goal with this podcast is to discuss the Second Coming in a way that's accessible, conversational, and faithful to Scripture. Welcome back to our Second Coming podcast. We are here with my good friend Jared Terry once again, and if you have any questions or concerns or suggestions or scriptures that you'd like to share, let us know. We have an email account at signsofthesecondcoming at gmail.com, and you can also go on to give feedback and even audio messages on anchor.fm. Just look for us on that platform, and you will find us. Um, Welcome, Jared. Thank you. It's good to be back. So last time we talked about the first four angels and their corresponding trumpets and announcements. And this time we should probably just pick up where we left off with the fifth angel. So the fifth angel, when he sounds his trumpet, it will usher in the very first woe. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the three woes. Woe, woe, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, right? Right. And you'll actually see that picked up several places in the scriptures where it describes three woes and how three woes are reserved, especially for the most wicked people as a gen, like general groups of people, nations and um, tribes and things like that, that are absolutely the most wicked. And those three woes are reserved for them. And during the second coming, it will be the most wicked and the most vile and the most violent and the most sinister of all people in all history of the world. There will be many, many people from all nations that come to Zion, but there will also be people from all nations who are engaged in the cause of Satan. And those are the ones that the three woes are reserved for.
1: As we've talked about before, I have found it interesting, as we have discussed the book of Revelations, that John seems to be building to this point in his book. We're getting to a point in the book of Revelations where he's starting to describe things in vivid detail. Before, we've just got brush strokes, but now we're getting into a point where John's becoming very specific about what he sees. And I've always found that fascinating, that when we get to this first woe, we're going to spend a lot of time on what this first woe means. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Sean?
0: I think that's absolutely right. You have almost like this acceleration uh, where um, you see more and more and more detail and like a, almost like a crescendo of detail from John. I think, that, uh, I think that detail is also there for us to allow us to see just how responsive the Lord will be to our prayers to protect us, to save us, and to redeem us from those who are wicked. You see prayers across the scriptures and in all parts of the scriptures where the righteous are praying to preserve them, have the Lord preserve them from their enemies, from the wicked, from those who want to do them harm. You see that with Nephi and his brothers. You see that with Joseph Smith and his enemies. You see that with King David. You see that a lot with King David. Um, you see that with the Nephites versus the Lamanites and, um, and all the war chapters in the Book of Mormon. You see that across the entire spectrum of the scriptures. You see that with Paul um, and the other apostles. Remember when we first started out with the narrative of the, angel, of the angels, and we had the censer and the, the prayers of, and the incense going up to heaven and the Lord responding? Remember that part? This is the response to those prayers. And this is the Lord's telling us through the Apostle John, I am going to answer your prayers and here ex- is exactly how I'm going to do it.
1: Great. So let's jump into that first woe. In chapter 9
0: of Revelation, verse 1, it says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, if we look at the Joseph Smith translation to that, I think that's an important thing to make a note of here.
1: Oh, good point. What does that say?
0: It says, instead of saying, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit, it says, and to the angel was given the key of the bottomless pit. So, it's important to note here that the Lord does not give the wicked keys. The keys of heaven and the keys of the priesthood and the keys of authority are reserved for those who are righteous. In this case, we have, let's let's kind of paint this picture here. We have the fifth angel, and he sounds his trump, and then a star falls from heaven unto the earth, and the angel is given the key of the bottomless pit. And then in verse 2, the angel, it says, and he opened, but we can fill that in with the angel, and the angel opened the bottomless pit. So it's not the star, it's not some random, you know, demon or something, it's the angel that's assigned specifically to hold the key to the of the bottomless pit. Now, this might be a good place to talk about what the bottomless pit is. <laughs> that's probably uh it sounds really dark and scary and uh you know, like a like a horror movie kind of thing. But the scriptures actually give us some pretty good information on what this bottomless pit is, the place where Satan and his angels live. In, in Latter-day Saint parlance, we would call it perdition. Um, but the scriptures have lots of words for it. In the book of Revelation, he calls it Abaddon, Apollyon, and
1: I pr- forgive my pronunciation of the Greek and Hebrew. In Nephi's vision um, of the tree of life, he, he talks about a, a bottomless pit. Um, and he says this in 1 Nephi 14.3, and it says, in that great pit which had been digged for them by that great and abominable church, which was founded by the devil and his children, that he might lead away the souls of men down to hell, yea, that great pit which hath been digged for the destruction of men shall be filled by those who digged it to their utter destruction, saith the Lamb of God, not the destruction of the soul, save it be the casting of it into that hell which hath no end. So here we have you know, I, I think a good parallel uh, to the scripture that we just read in the Book of Revelations, where Nephi talks about how this great pit is also a pit that hath no end. In other words, it's a bottomless pit. So I find it interesting that here we're reading about the key to this bottomless pit, this bottomless pit being opened by the angel, but then when we look back at what's going on. In Nephi's vision, he sees a very similar pit. And he sees that this pit um, was dug by that great and abominable church. And the purpose of it was to lead away the souls of men down to hell.
0: I think that that is exactly right. Hell is usually a state of our own making, um, a situation of our own making. A frame of mind of our own making where we are uh, mired in sin, we are encumbered with sin, and we literally create misery and destruction and suffering because of our sins. I think, as an extension of that, we can also create suffering and destruction and misery as a result of our sins for other people. Other people can suffer too because of our our choices, and so I think the um, the imagery here is really interesting. You have this idea that Satan and his minions were cast down into the earth, and almost like they created this bottomless pit of evil because of their actions, because of their choices, and they have. Um, as a result, they have tried to drag others down into this pit where those people are also helping to dig further and further and further into the pits of despair and and the um, the pit of the abyss, right? Of course, there is always a rescue available to those of us who are living on the earth. But for those who have been cast out of heaven, those evil demons, angels, whatever you want to call them, devils, they do not have a redemption because they completely and fully rejected, fully knowing the plan of the Father, they rejected it and they rejected the Savior who he chose. And so those who are devils and angels to the devil, they do not get an escape from the bottomless pit. Someday they will go to their eternal reward and it will be like a bottomless pit there also because they can never escape. Um, for those who choose to follow Satan and dig their own bottomless pit, then they, they will someday realize that this was suffering and a punishment of their own making. It, it was not that God wanted to send them there necessarily. It's that they chose it. They chose this. with the second coming, when the angel who has been assigned to this particular stewardship, that's a rough one, who opens the bottomless pit, those who decide and make the choice to follow the devil, to follow Satan, to follow his cause, to join his kingdom, they are going to choose this, fully knowing exactly what they're doing, they reject the gospel message. They reject the Savior who is on earth at this point. They reject that message from the missionaries and the prophets. And they say, no, thank you. We are enemies to all of that.
1: And we would prefer to follow Satan. In 2 in Nephi 28, verse 8, um, Nephi once again brings up this analogy of a pit. And he says, there shall be many which shall say, eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin, yea, lie a little. Take advantage of one because of his words. Dig a pit for thy neighbor, there is no harm in this. And do all these things, for tomorrow we die. And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we will be saved in the kingdom of God. Do we live in a day where you could lie a little and take advantage of someone because of their words? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, just peruse anything on social media, right? You'll see how people twist people's words on social media. And the purpose is to not necessarily convince them that their idea is correct. Their, the purpose of it is to twist their words for the purpose of literally digging them into a social pit. Can you name me an individual from the book of Genesis... That was thrown into a pit.
0: Yeah, um, Joseph. He was thrown into the pit by his brothers.
1: And why did his brothers throw him into a pit?
0: Well, it was a conspiracy of sorts, they were jealous of him. And they were jealous of his father's attention that he was giving to Joseph. And they were also kind of jealous of Joseph's spirituality. He was having visions and dreams, and they didn't like that.
1: They didn't like that his visions and dreams were, were prophesying that eventually he would be a ruler over them. Yeah, they didn't like that either. <laughs> um, they had
0: the layman and Lemuel treatment, right? Uh, why do you get to be a ruler over us? What's, a, what's the matter with you, Joseph? Uh, <laughs> but they were going to kill him and reuben talked him out of it
1: it's it's my opinion here and this this is just just my opinion um but i I wonder if this analogy of a pit is supposed to have us reflect a little bit on that moment in the old testament that's the first time i can think of where someone is literally thrown into a pit in order to destroy them interesting um and and all of a sudden you get this analogy being used then for the great and abominable church which is essentially an institution right yeah. you get this this analogy for people in general like when people do something to destroy the character or livelihood or or whatever of somebody once again we're using that analogy of a pit and and in essence the purpose of that pit is to destroy um So I find it, I find, I just find that an interesting parallel.
0: I think that, um, with Joseph, especially we can be as even, even the saints, even those who are righteous, we can be surrounded by the powers of Satan and the evil of the world and, um, enveloped, so to speak, by the bottomless pit. Hell can send forth all of its mighty winds and its fiery darts in the whirlwind Um, And the very jaws of hell can gape open after thee, right? And know this, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. So for the righteous, having gone through the darkness and the difficulties of the bottomless pit, the Lord can deliver you. But those same experiences are reserved eternally For the wicked, and there is no deliverance because they rejected the one who could deliver them. I think it would be good for us. We talked a little bit about the different types of heaven in our podcast about the New Jerusalem. I think it would be good to talk about the different types of hell. That word applies to so many different things um, in the scriptures. And so if we kind of just break that down a little bit and give different names to the different places that hell refers to, then I think that it would be really helpful for us. For example, um, in the scriptures, you have this idea of Hades or Sheol. Hades is the Greek and Sheol is the Hebrew. Those could be translated as the grave. Or in other words, what we would call the spirit world. The spirit world is where all the dead go, whether they're righteous or wicked, And they are there to await their final destination or their their final reward. And Hades in Old Greek, Hades is referring to not just the righteous or the wicked, but all of the dead. And Sheol was considered the same thing. There's a place within Hades in the Greek tradition called um, Tartarus. And Tartarus is specifically reserved for the wicked and the wicked are resigned to a place within Hades called Tartarus, right? We would, we would usually call that outer darkness. Now, there's, um, there's a misunderstanding, I think, within the church of what outer darkness is. Most people, when they hear outer darkness, they think, oh yeah, sons of perdition. And um, the sons of perdition certainly in the spirit will, would be in outer darkness. But when I was at BYU— Um, I had a professor named Joseph Fielding McConkie, and he was the son of Bruce R. McConkie. And I think that uh, he learned a few things from his father, but he was just brilliant in his own right. And one of the things he explained to us one day was how most members of the church have a mistaken idea of what spirit prison is and what outer darkness is. Typically, I mean, even among missionaries, you teach investigators that outer darkness is that fourth place after everybody receives their, you know, (laughs) they receive their reward. That's that fourth place without glory where the sons of perdition go. And you don't really go into it with investigators very much. Um, And you also talk about how the spirit world is separated. You draw a line right through the circle and you have on the one side paradise and on the other side, you have spirit prison. Well, he said that's not completely accurate. If we go by what the Doctrine and Covenant says in section 138, it very much describes the entirety of the spirit world as a prison. In fact, it says that the righteous looked upon their absence from their spirits as as a bondage because that separation from your body takes some freedoms away. Right? You can do things with your body that you can't do with just a spirit.
1: I am familiar with those scriptures in section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where it does talk about how the righteous viewed their uh, separation from their body as a, as a captivity. And so, in essence, that is kind of a, a prison, as you just mentioned. So, we have
0: this general idea of death or the grave or the spirit world, being one type of prison or or a waiting place of some sort. It's a place for all of the dead to gather. And if you translated that particular word in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would translate it probably as the grave, where the place where the dead go. The next level of that is a place within the spirit world. In the Greek, it's Tartarus, um, but we would call it outer darkness in Latter-day Saint Parlance. It's a place specifically reserved in the spirit world for the wicked. And they have no knowledge of the gospel or the plan of salvation to give them hope of ever escaping. Until, of course, they come in contact with those who are in the spirit world preaching the gospel, who are there specifically to save those people from that state, the state of outer darkness, that state of of suspense, so that they can be prepared, repent of their sins, have faith. And receive vicarious ordinances. That's the the second type of of hell, and then you have this third type, the deepest and most most heinous and most uh, scary type, and that is where Satan and his angels dwell. That is um, reserved for those who are rebellious forever and lost forever. That's where the word perdition comes from. Lost forever because they rev- they have completely and fully rejected God and become an enemy to him. That is where the bottomless pit is. That is where the angels of Satan are. That is where the demons reside. That is where the devils are um, locked away until the time that they are released by him who has the key, the fifth angel who holds the key to that bottomless pit. Now, that's that's just kind of a review. We had three heavens in our other discussion, and these are the three hells, so to speak. So we have these seven angels, right? We know that Michael is the seventh angel. We we learn that in the Doctrine and Covenants, and we also learn in the Doctrine and Covenants that Michael is Adam, um, the father of all, the the prince of all, right? We could be fairly certain, too, that as the second most powerful angel in the um, uh, in the hierarchies of angelic heavens... Um, we also would have Gabriel as one of those angels, and I'm not sure what number he would be assigned to, but Gabriel certainly would be one of those who would be among the, the most powerful angels. We learn from the Joseph Smith uh, account, his, his revelations on the matter, that Gabriel is the prophet Noah, and that Gabriel was um, in charge also of the restoration of all things in the latter days really interesting role for him, like a very, very interesting role. We also learned from the book of Daniel that Gabriel appeared to Daniel. And Gabriel, as we know, too, appeared to Mary to announce the the birth of the Savior. And so it seems like Gabriel had this special role, too, even before the coming of Christ. And so we have Gabriel playing this very special role of announcing and restoring and uh, revealing things to important people throughout history. The scriptural record is very scant when it comes to describing the names of the angels, but we get one other name in the Book of, of Doctrine and Covenants that uh, that is probably worth noting, and that's Raphael. Raphael is mentioned several times in the Book of Tobit, where he's described as quote one of the seven holy angels which present the prayers of the saints and which go in and out before the glory of the Holy One. So Tobit is is an apocryphal book, but we could probably use that as a reference point to say that Raphael is probably one of those seven angels. Also, so who are the rest of them? Um, we don't really know who Raphael is. Uh, there's been a, a few people who have guessed that it might be Enoch. Um, I kind of like that, but it could be. I mean, it could be a lot of different people. We have lists of seven angels in different places. For example, there's a list in the Book of Enoch of the seven angels and the seven, the names of the seven angels are, they vary. Um, You have like Fanuel and Sariel, Ragel, Uriel, different angels like that. I don't, I'm not exactly sure if those are the names of the seven angels, but we do get those kinds of lists, right?
1: I think the point you're trying to make here is here in the book of revelations, we have seven angels with their seven trumpets. And we know that Michael is the last angel um and then in other books uh, apocryphal writings as well as revealed scripture we have mention of seven angels right um and so you've got a, a parallel there and so that gives you a pretty good idea that more than likely those apocryphal writings about seven angels and then here's john talking about seven angels there's there's correlation there um so yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up about uh, the seven angels and the roles that these seven angels have, not only within the context of the history of this earth, but also the missions that they will be given um, in, in the last days. Um, and one of these angels, their job is to obviously unseal um, this bottomless pit with the key that he has been given... And we know that, as, you, as we know, keys are, are given through the priesthood. So he, he's been given this key, and he's going to turn it, and he's going to open a pit and, and do his thing. In ancient
0: tradition, the angel Uriel was in charge of Tartarus. And I don't know if that extends also to the bottomless pit, um, but that's kind of an interesting tidbit that, that I learned. And it's just a traditional thing. It's not a scriptural thing at all, but it is interesting that each of these angels has a specific assignment. And the assignment for Gabriel, obviously, he was the the prophet Noah, and that was a big deal, right? He was in charge of saving the entire human race from the flood. But also, um, when he appeared to Daniel, they had a physical interaction. Um, It's actually really kind of interesting. If Gabriel was the prophet Noah and he had long since passed, why would they have a physical interaction when the resurrection had not yet happened? So this is, this is Sean Bailey doctrine here, but I think that Gabriel was translated. I think that Noah, um, as one of the kings of Salem, probably um, the father or grandfather of Melchizedek himself, he and the city of Salem were translated, and Gabriel became a, wi- a ministering angel with a physical body, uh, a translated body, but a physical body, that Ministered to Mary, ministered to Daniel, and ministered to many other people uh, until the time of the resurrection. And I think that it would be interesting, and I, I don't know if this is the case, but I think it would be interesting if Gabriel also played a role in the coming of Jesus Christ and his second coming, and translation again becomes part of the process for the saints to protect them and to preserve them from the, not just the evil of the earth, but also the destructions that would come upon the earth. We know that the the world and the earth is going to be receive its paradisiacal glory, but I think also we're going to have translated beings during that time, and that will become a very common thing among the, the people of the earth, um, the righteous people of the earth.
1: Okay, so should we continue with with verse 2? We haven't even made it into verse 2, or at least through verse (laughs) 2. Sure. So,
0: chapter 9 of Revelation, verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men who have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. It talks also in verse seven, it says, And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were the breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots, of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Now we would probably say that the angel who has the key of the bottomless pit is not the same angel who is the king of the bottomless pit. The king of the bottomless pit, of course, is Satan. And his name is Abaddon or Apollyon. His name is perdition. His name is death and hell and misery and woe, right? So we have to distinguish between the angel of God who holds that key and the angel of the bottomless pit who is in charge of those, those evil spirits and those demons. I think that um, in this case, you have the enemies of God that are responding to what God has done so far. And it's really interesting to draw the parallel between the smoke of incense, the the altar of incense that rises up as the prayers of the saints rise up to heaven. Those are collected and responded to by the Lord. And then you have kind of this this, um, dark version. Of that, where you're not seeing prayers rising up to heaven, you're seeing darkness arise out of this bottomless pit. And rather than looking for redemption, these particular demons, these particular spirits, um, these evil spirits are looking for vengeance. They have been cast into this pit, and in some cases, I'm sure they have been. Contained there, they have been entrapped there and imprisoned there since the beginning of the world, um, or even before, and they want vengeance. And there's probably a few that this is the very first time they're able to be released from this pit since the time that they were cast down there. You've got this um, this really interesting kind of dynamic. You've got the first four angels who are sent by God to warn and to um, to almost give like a, this warning voice, these warning trumpets and it follows with these plagues and these different things that are happening so that the people know that the Lord not only does the Lord say that they need to be righteous, but he shows them the type of power that they're dealing with here. And Satan responds as he always does as he's allowed to do until the end. He responds with his own angels. All right, so let me ask you a couple of questions, Jared, on these verses. All right, let's, let's review this a little bit. So first of all, we have a smoke coming out of the pit. What do you think the smoke
1: is? It draws back to the vision that Nephi had where he saw a great mist of darkness that was meant to blind men and keep them from finding the iron rod or advancing along the iron rod to make it to the tree of life and so um, I also see what we're talking about here with this darkness how it it covers the sky in other words making it impossible to see Uh, it makes it impossible to really advance forward Um, it makes me wonder if we're dealing with kind of the this this smoke is kind of an analogy of, of the adversary and and those that follow him are are trying to to veil um, the eyes of the people from recognizing um, their savior and and accepting him as their savior, so that the people on earth can then seek redemption from from their sins.
0: I think that thought is exactly right. Exactly right. You draw the parallel between the mist of darkness from Lehi's dream. Um, And Nephi saw that it was uh, um, the darkness that comes from from the evil one, right? And I I think that's exactly right. And then you talk, too, about how—I mean, consider this. You have a city where the Lord dwells in a beautiful, marvelous temple that cannot be touched by the— Wicked armies, the wicked navies, and the wicked air forces of the world, it is untouchable. And yet, the entire world is blinded somehow to that. They're blinded to the the message that comes from the missionaries who come from Zion. They're blinded to the words of the prophets. They're blinded to the message that's been sent out. They're blinded to the warnings and the, the angels that have sounded so far. They're blinded to all of this. Why? Because the smoke and the mist of darkness and the, um, the obscuring evil of Satan has come out of the pit and is, is blinding them to the light. I I love that idea. I love that idea. Okay. Next question. Out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Okay. So um, we have this idea of darkness and evil, and it's covering the earth. And then we have locusts that are coming out of this darkness and evil. What do you think those locusts
1: are? The, I, I believe these locusts represent modern warfare um, and the and the vehicles that man has created to destroy one another um, and to do it quickly and decisively. In verse 9, where it says, And and they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron, And the sound of their wings was the sound of chariots, of many horses running to battle. Now, living in the twenty-first century, um, you know we don't really—we've never really experienced horses running to battle. Um, Maybe, maybe some of you have had experiences where maybe you've heard horses running on the plains. Or maybe you've seen a horse race and you've you've heard the thundering of their hooves on the ground. Um, I believe that that probably pales in comparison to just the tumultuous noise of hundreds or hundreds or thousands of chariots running into battle. Just what would that sound like? What kind of terror would that strike into the hearts of the people that just heard this thunderous noise, knowing that eventually their death is going to come swiftly? Yeah, it was probably Um, like the
0: most, um, the loudest sound that anyone would have ever heard back in those times that was man-made.
1: Right. So um, I'll give you an experience. Um, So one day I was at work um, and I was participating in flight test and we were in our little trailer and we were getting ready and we were getting ready for flight test, and it just so now, happened just that cl- on that day... Just to day,
0: clarify for the, the listening world out sure. there, um, Jared is a rocket scientist, literally. And, <laughs> I'm not yes, you, don't be... Don't
1: be <laughs> I wouldn't say rocket scientist. Don't be modest. I wouldn't say rocket don't scientist. Don't be modest, I you're a rocket, rocket scientist, scientist let's
0: just be honest here. Um, <laughs> he is a literal rocket scientist, and he works for one of the government contractors um, that uh, develops... Um These types of things, right, like flight tests and stuff like that, so okay, cool. continue
1: yeah, all right, I'll continue so um so here I was, I was hunkered down in this in this trailer, and we were no more than fifty yards away from a runway um, where planes are are taking off, and it just so happened that on that day um, some f fifteens were were taking off and so here I am in this dark room and all of a sudden you hear just this tumultuous noise of, it it literally did sound like horses galloping and it got louder and louder and louder and then eventually the plane takes off and it took off pretty close to where our trailer was and you could just hear just this heart throbbing noise that just it, it hits you to your core And you felt it in your body. And that was just one airplane. Um, And then another one took off. And then another one took off. And each time I heard that, I was thinking about this particular scripture of, of chariots going to battle. And it made me contemplate a little bit about what John saw here. Seeing the devices that man has made to... Um, inflict pain on, on one another. Um, yes, these, these um, advancements in modern warfare help defend people, um, but they're also used to attack. And so I, I could see John seeing this thing, seeing this locust flying through the air. It flies in the air. When you look up high, it's, it's, it's flying at 15,000 feet, 20,000 feet, and it looks like just a little insect in the sky But even though it's a little insect in the sky, you can hear it. You can hear those planes at that altitude. They make noise. Um, And not only does he see one, but he sees many of them flying through the air. And they strike fast and they strike hard. And he's using an analogy of a scorpion. And if you've seen a scorpion strike, they strike fast and they strike hard. Um, And they... and and they strike quickly and painfully. Um, And so here he is, he's and and painfully. So here he is. He's seen these locusts in the sky. He's seen missiles coming off of these locusts and he's seen these missiles fly down to the earth and strike targets. And lo and behold, when these missiles strike the ground, um, they don't burst in a cloud of, of glitter. They don't. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be really cool if they did, but they don't. They When they hit the... Glitter bomb. Kaboom! Um, But when they hit the ground, they explode. And they create columns of smoke wherever they hit. Um, And so I think... And and this is just my opinion, but I think that that what John is seeing here is I think he's seeing these advancements in modern warfare, whether it's an F-15, whether it's... An F-35, whether, whether it's an Apache helicopter. Yeah, whatever it might be, he's seen these things fly through the air, something he has never seen before. And, and notice here how there's kind of a very strict command given unto this army, if you will. Um, they're not allowed to inflict punishment upon those who have the this, this seal of, of God in their foreheads. But everyone else is fair game.
0: I think that you could probably very easily uh, make the case, and we'll find out eventually, I'm sure, but you could very easily make the case that these locusts are those war machines, just like we talked about, right? But I think also, John is not one-dimensional, and so in this case, I think we should look at locusts in another kind of perspective, too. I'm convinced that they represent the war machines of our modern era, and the ability that they have to inflict pain. It says that they um, inflict pain for five months, that they don't kill, but that they should torment men for five months. And that probably is a reference to some sort of biological warfare, where they don't necessarily kill you, but they can make you really, really suffer.
1: And not just biological, which we can get to in just a second, but you also have to recognize that you've got... Telecommunications as well. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. How many people would see not being able to use their iPhone or their Android for a day? What kind of affliction and torment would that bring upon Drastic. people? Rastic. <laughs> <Horrible. laughs> if you start taking out telecommunication, telecommunication, well, right, you take what you would could have take out
0: Telecommunication. You could take out power. You could take out. You the could take food out supplies. Power. You could take out. Um, yep. the financial system. I mean, there's so many things that we just consider a part of our normal everyday life that if they went away, um, it would be at least five months of torment. Right.
1: Or look at the rolling blackouts that happened in Texas this last right um, winter when the temperatures plunged and just look at the chaos that happened. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you know, people were, were cold or, or people actually, some some people had their houses flooded because of other things that happened. In um, California, I mean,
0: they're like, oh, yeah, that's a normal weekday for us. Rolling blackouts, yeah, that's, well, they can't handle that. We do that every day. <laughs> poor yeah, California. But I guess the We're idea, sorry, California. Yeah, poor,
1: maybe. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, California is a beautiful place. I'd love to live in California, but I can't afford to raise my family in California. You can't afford anything um, in California. No, you can't. Um so how how you do that in people in California, I don't know, but I I applaud you for being able to live in California. We still love you. We um, still love you. We we, we just we, we know do. that
0: you've been tormented more than five months over there. So I got a couple thoughts too on the exact choices that John has made when he's describing these um these events. He chooses locusts for some reason. And Locus, um in ancient times they they used to uh, have people who would live off of locusts. They would eat locusts, like John the Baptist, for example. He would eat locusts and honey, right? Um, well, I think
1: if you if you roast them just right and dip them in honey, I think quite, it's fantastic. quite the delicacy. I, I haven't tried it, but but I mean, if 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 that's what he lived off of, it must have been really tasty. I'm,
0: yeah, I'm sure. I'll I'll take his word for it. Um, locusts are swarming creatures, right? But they have this state; they call it like a almost like a feeding frenzy, where when locusts get riled up and and they start in this this frenzy, they devour everything in their path, and it's it's almost like their psychology shifts. I know that it's probably weird to think of locusts with you know their brain psychology or whatever. I don't even know the anatomy of locusts per se, Um, but there's a change that takes place in a locust swarm when they are in this frenzy that just wipes out everything in their path.
1: And it's not just wiping it out over a course of like a week. We're talking like wiping in things minutes. out in the course of like minutes. Yeah. yeah. Like devouring um, a tree it, it, in a matter of minutes. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of some of the things that happened just before COVID hit in, in, in 2020. Do you do you recall reading reports of the locust swarms that were going on in Africa yeah, and the Middle yeah, East? Yeah, I do remember that.
0: I do. To draw, like to to take what you've just described and to draw a parallel to war, you have this when when you get um, a military that is in a frenzy, right? Where it, it's it goes beyond just following orders. Um, serving your time, you know, doing a chain of command kind of thing. It goes beyond that to almost like a bloodlust where you want to go above and beyond in your destruction. You want to go, you you have this deep vengeance and this deep desire to just slaughter. And we're not really, we don't see that very much in our military because um, frankly, our military is just, outmatching every opponent they ever come across. And so they can, with with a little bit of technology and some really good strategy and some extremely good tactics, they're able to take out just about anybody. Um, and so we don't really see this frenzy that happens among armies that need the bloodlust. They need the, the the violence. And I think that's what you are getting in this description of these locusts that you have just this frenzy among the wicked, that they are going to take out their opponents. They are going to wipe them off the map, every last living soul. And notice here that it says they don't hurt the grass like locusts do. They don't hurt green things or trees like locusts do. They are going after the men who are not sealed in their foreheads sealed of God in their foreheads. So their, their frenzy is, is to wipe out entire
1: cities, entire nations, entire civilizations. Which is something that, um, in a in time frame we're talking about, five months, I mean, that's something that would have been kind of unheard of, I believe, back then. I mean, how long did it take, you know, Rome to finally sack Jerusalem? I mean, it took them a while to do it and essentially build a ramp to it so they can finally invade Jerusalem. And it, it took them a while to just take over Jerusalem. And here we're talking about this frenzied army, you know, being able to lay waste to cities and nations.
0: In the book of Jeremiah, it describes this army as having the Garden of Eden before them and desolation behind them. It's literally a taking a beautiful place, and making it
1: completely and utterly destroyed and desolate. And and in these warfares that we've seen, what's the first thing that goes in? Um,
0: Usually it's Air Force.
1: It's your Air Force, right? Your Air Force is going in to knock down high-priority targets. Destroy supply Um, lines. Whether it's communications, supply lines, whatever it might be, their job is to soften up your target. So when you bring your ground troops in with their tanks, the enemy is pretty much at a point where they just want to give up because they've been pounded for days on end.
0: The effect is not exactly what they were planning because we will see this later on in the second woe. The effect is not, well, we surrender. The effect is we want vengeance now too. They hurt us now we want to hurt them. And it really just rallies the entire world of the wicked to, um, to a world war and to absolute devastation across the, across the globe, um, everywhere where the righteous aren't, right? Everywhere where the wicked have been gathered for the burning. Now, it's interesting, too, to look at scorpion stings, okay? So they're, they're saying that these locusts are going to um, hurt men not necessarily kill them, but they're going to hurt them for five months. And if you look at the um, like the description, I've never been stung by a scorpion. Thank goodness. I've seen them. They've they've been in our house in the desert because we grew up there.
1: My wife did. She did when she was pregnant with yeah when she was pregnant with with twins. How did she describe she it? Got stung. Um, she just said it was just kind of this searing, like numbing pain. I think she got stung in her hand. And uh, and it was a small scorpion. Like, it, it wasn't a, a big scorpion. It was a small they scorpion. They say those are so, the worst kind. Yeah. And so she was a little worried just because she gets stung by a scorpion. And here she is pregnant with twins. And so, I mean, it did warrant a call to make sure that there wasn't anything we had to do. And they're like, yeah, you're fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. But, but, yeah, I mean, she's been stung. I've never been stung um, by a scorpion. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I can... Uh, it's something I don't seek out for. All right. <clears throat> so luckily here in Missouri, there's not a lot of scorpions.
0: Yeah. Scorpion stings are like as I've been reading about them. Um scorpion stings are they're really painful and they kind of they're painful at first and then they kind of cause this burning, numbing sensation. Um, and then like it it just slowly goes away. And that's how John is describing the effect of these locusts. It's a quick Um, hurtful, painful, kind of numbing thing. And then little by little, it, it goes away until we get to the second woe. But again, we have to remember, we have to remember that these things are not designed for those who are sealed by God, sealed of God in their foreheads. When we talk about being sealed in their foreheads, we might have mentioned this before, but. There is certainly a reference here to the temple, where in the temple we are washed, we are anointed, and sealed with certain blessings, and then later on we're actually sealed to our families and to God Himself. This sealing of God is a reference, I think, to both the ordinances of the temple and also the um, the idea that we are receiving our calling and election made sure. That, that calling and election is made sure. And those who are um, who receive that blessing, who dwell in the presence of Christ, who are under the protection of Zion, who live in peace and harmony and refuge in the land of Zion, they do not have to worry about the modern warfare, the biological weapons, the locusts, the scorpions. Um, the bottomless pit, the evil, the smoke, whatever it is that this this is, they don't have to worry because they are there with the Lord, and He is protecting them.:
1: So to kind of summarize what you said there, I think what you what you just told me is if if I keep my covenants, the covenants that I've made in the temple. Um, and the covenants that I've made between me and, and my wife, that that sealing is going to be a protection. And because I've kept my covenants, I will be protected um, when, when this event happens. And
0: whenever anything like it happens, anytime you have evil that is fighting against good, you have that, that protection of your covenants If it is a situation where you die and you are with Him, or you live and you are with Him, it doesn't matter because the Lord will protect you and He will preserve you from the consequences of sin because you've repented of your sins. He will protect you from the consequences of death because He is the life and the light of the world. He will protect you from the consequences of evil because he is completely good. And if you are good with him, if you are perfect in him, then you have those blessings too.
1: And I think that's a, that's a comforting thought to have, right? Because I know that, especially with what's happened over the last year, we've all experienced a lot of interesting things. You know, our way of life being changed because of a, of a pandemic and there are people that are scared. There are people that are fearful of the future. If you keep your covenants with God, he's going to keep his covenants with you. And he's going to bless you. And he's going to support you. And he's going to give you comfort when you, when you ask for it. And, it's, and the reason why those blessings will come is because you're keeping those covenants
0: when you When you have that covenant and when you keep that covenant, you don't just bless your own family, you bless all of the families of the earth. That's the promise, right? Could we finish up with just a personal experience? A few months ago, I had gone back to Peru. I've talked about going to Peru a couple of times, I'm sure, um, but I went back to Peru and I stayed there for a little while with a family that I baptized when I was on my mission there. and this family they have um since all of the all of the kids who we baptize, all the daughters, have had children. Uh the third daughter hasn't had children yet, and she gets razzed about it all the time, but they're working on it. We baptized their mother, we baptized their their grandparents, and we baptized the three daughters. And now um the the all three daughters are married. Um they have children now of their own. And the very first grandchild was just baptized, Alessandro. This just happened last Saturday. He was baptized when I was there. I asked him why he hadn't been baptized yet. We had a family home evening lesson on baptism, and I said, "Alessandro, why haven't you been baptized yet?" And he said, "Well, I don't I don't know." And I invited him to accept that covenant and to be baptized. And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll do that." It was an exact mirror of what I had done years and years before with his mom when I invited her to be baptized, and with his grandma when I invited her, and with his great-grandparents when I invited them. So now I had the opportunity to invite four generations of that family to be baptized and receive those covenants, and this last Saturday he was baptized. He, He wanted his Uncle Patrick to baptize him, and Patrick did and they sent me pictures. It was absolutely awesome. I was able to take that ministry from where I was here in the United States all the way to Peru and bless the lives of the, those families that I taught and that I invited to be baptized. And now I can see that that covenant is continuing. That blessing is continuing through the generations, and it is absolutely It's absolutely awesome to be able to see that. Because really, at the end of the day, it's not about being perfect parents. Really, what it's about is just teaching your children to make and keep covenants. That's what parenting is designed to do. It's to bless your family through covenant making and to bless other families through covenant making. And eventually, collectively, it's to bless entire nations through covenant making. And that is what we are here to do. That is what we have been commissioned and called through that calling, that special calling of Christ. That is what we have been called to do is to bless the lives of all of those around us through covenant making and covenant keeping and to invite them to come unto Christ and choose him so that he can choose them. That is how we have a calling made sure. That is how we have an election made sure. And that is how we receive those promises forever. When we as a nation, when we as a people, when we as a church receive, make, and keep those covenants, then those blessings can be poured out upon our heads just as the scriptures promise. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, Sean has authored a book series called Chronological Signs of the Second Coming of Christ. Volume one is about the sixth seal and volume two is about the seventh seal. Go to seanswork.com signs to find show notes for this episode and links to purchase the books. This podcast is not an official production of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we faithfully sustain and support the church, its leaders, its teachings, and the scriptures, including the Bible, and the Book of Mormon.